in today's podcast, we do delve into some sensitive and potentially triggering topics. Viewer discretion is advised or listener discretion is advised, particularly around children and young people. And if you or anybody you know is suffering with mental health challenges, we strongly encourage you to seek professional support. Welcome to the Working on Wellbeing podcast by the World Wellbeing Movement. The podcast that allows you to be a fly on the wall during conversations with the world's leading wellbeing experts. I'm your host, Sarah Cunningham, and in today's episode, we'll hear from someone who has pivoted their career from being a successful lecturer in physical activity, health and well-being to becoming a politician. And they've recently launched a report with the Fabian Society, which makes recommendations for putting well-being first. But before we introduce today's guest, I'd first like to say a word of thanks to our season sponsor, S&P Global. The world's leading organisations rely on S&P Global for the essential intelligence they need to make confident decisions. S&P Global, powering global markets. Now, at the Working on Wellbeing podcast and at the World Wellbeing Movement, we think it's really important to hear from voices across the political spectrum. The World Wellbeing Movement's mission is to put well-being at the heart of decision-making in both business and public policy. And that's why it is so important to hear from politicians who are making inroads when it comes to well-being governance. One such changemaker is today's guest. Kim Leadbeater has been a Member of Parliament in the UK since 2021. And in 2023, she launched a new report, the Healthy Britain Report, with the Fabian Society, which makes the case for taking a new approach to government that centres on the health and well-being of the population. Kim Leadbeater, you are so welcome. Hello, it's lovely to be here. It's wonderful. And thank you so much for your time because I know how incredibly busy you are. But I would love to start by talking about your career journey because I'm always so interested in the pivots and turns we all take in our career journeys. Um, and you didn't take the traditional route into politics. You trained um, as an expert in the science behind physical, activ physical activity, health and well-being. So you have a first class honours degree in that domain and you've worked as a personal trainer and a lecturer at third level in that domain. Um, which means you are certainly an expert on well-being science. Um, but some people might think that it's an unusual route into politics. Um, many of our UK listeners will know exactly who you are, um, but we have an international audience. We have listeners from right across the world, and some may not be aware. Um, so you and I had a quick chat before the podcast started, and I asked if you're comfortable with me sharing, um, and you you said you are, but... Um, Many of our UK listeners will know that very tragically, your sister, um, Jo Cox, was killed in an attack that shocked the nation in Britain back in 2016. And she was an MP uh, for the same constituent that you're an MP for, Batley and Spen. So I know it's a very difficult topic to talk about, but I know you have talked about that playing a part in your decision uh, to run yourself uh, 
as a candidate for Batley and Spen, but I'd love you to share in your own words a little bit about your career history, including those very early days um, and how you decided to, to run as an MP. Yeah, thank you so much for that lovely introduction. Yeah, I think it's fair to say I had a very um, unique journey into politics. Um, I've done a lot with my life prior to becoming a member of parliament. Um, I'd actually started my career uh, working in sales. I used to sell beds of all things. Um, and then I went back to university as a mature student at the age of 25 and did my degree in health-related exercise and fitness. So very much a holistic um, approach to health and well-being. Um, and that was my real passion. Um, and then I went on to do my teaching qualifications, uh, became a lecturer, and I used to teach at two local colleges on degree programs, very similar to the one that I studied. Um, the title of the program I mainly taught on was physical activity, health and well-being. But again, really taking that holistic approach to our well-being. Um, and then, as you said, in 2016, my life basically changed forever when my sister, Joe Cox, who was the member of parliament for Batley and Spen um, in the area where we grew up and where I still live, where my parents still live uh, and many of our family and friends still live. Um, Joe was murdered by uh, someone with right-wing extremist views, literally five minutes from where I live um, on the street as she was going to a constituency surgery. And um, I think it's fair to say when something so unbelievably horrific happens, everything that you think you know and understand in life is just shattered. Um, and from that day, life just changed forever. Um, after she was killed, we were very clear that we wanted to create a positive legacy for Jo. We wanted to focus on the way that she lived her life rather than the way that she died. And Jo was just the most wonderful person you could hope to meet. She was very much a people person like me. She'd got a real sense of social justice and fairness and equality. And she'd worked in, in, in charities around the world. And then she'd come back to where we were born and brought up to be our member of parliament. So we created a legacy for Jo through the Jo Cox Foundation where we picked up a lot of the work that she'd started um, internationally, nationally and locally. Um, and I did that for five years, uh, working for the foundation. And then in 2021, the lady that had taken over from Joe as a member of parliament went on to be the, the mayor of West Yorkshire and the seat became available. And, and I was very clear, to be honest, that I didn't want to get involved in politics. It wasn't my thing. It wasn't my background. But I'd also seen the way that Joe did the job. And actually, politics like everything else that I'd done with my life up to that point, is about people. And if it isn't, then it should be. Um, and then a number of people said to me, why don't you go for it? You'd be really good. And I was adamant, no, 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 it's not for me. But actually, I spoke to my parents, I spoke to Joe's children, and they said, Auntie Kim, we think you'd be a really good MP and we think you should go for it. So I went for it. Long story short, like quite a, a toxic by-election campaign uh, where people came in from outside the area to try and cause trouble within our communities. Uh, but I won the seat um, and have been a member of parliament ever since. Um, so a very big departure. But what I've tried to do in this job is channel some of the uh, previous experiences that I've had in life, including my passion for physical activity and health and well-being, into this job and looking at how we can create a political framework for that agenda. Um, so, yeah, so it's been a mixed, a mixed career to date, um, but I'm still here and I'm working as hard as I possibly can to, to make a change and to make a difference to the lives of people in my constituency and uh, beyond as well. Well, Kim, you're an absolute inspiration. And I know that your words um, of bravery, of courage, of, you know, 
just wanting to make a positive impact on society will inspire so many of our listeners uh, today. Um, I am a huge believer in the importance of diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging in all fields. And I always say that when it comes to the workplace, um, well, actually, if we all come from the same background, we're all going to come up with the same ideas and far more worryingly, we're all going to make the same mistakes. And of course, it's the exact same in politics. So for me, it's really refreshing that you come from a slightly different background to maybe the traditional trajectory that a politician would take. Do you feel that that has equipped you with new and different skill sets that you bring to the role? I do. I mean, I think politics needs, as you say, a wide variety of people from a wide variety of different backgrounds. And sometimes that can be a little bit scary because I think I'm not really a politician. But actually what I brought to this job, I hope, is a wealth of life experience. And it means that I can relate to people in probably a slightly different way from someone who has maybe just always worked in politics. And I think you need those people as well. I think you need that breadth of experience. So I've run my own business. I've worked in the public sector. I've worked in the private sector. And I've worked in the voluntary sector. And I think that level of different experiences means that I'm better at doing this job uh, than I would have been if I hadn't had those experiences. And certainly it informs my decision-making because I understand what life is like for lots of different people in lots of different situations. And I think that's a really good thing for a politician to understand and to know. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it really struck me when you said that politics is about people. And it is. And and what we need is politicians who understand people. Um, one of the things that really strikes me about you is you bring this incredible wealth of knowledge and background in the science behind health and well-being to your role. Um, and you are one of a, no a growing number of well-being oriented politicians across the world. Um, you know, you've got counterparts who are well-being oriented politicians in Finland, in Iceland, in New Zealand, in Canada, in Australia, in Ireland. Um, and it's wonderful to see. But I'd love to hear in your words. Why is it so important that politicians take a well-being first approach? I think if we get the health and well-being as a country in a good place, everything else follows. If we've got happy, healthy individuals, we have happy, happy, healthy communities and we have happy, healthy society and, and a happy, healthy country. So it's a building block for everything else as far as I'm concerned. Um, and that has to be done holistically. So we have to talk about physical health and well-being, mental health and well-being, and for me, social health and well-being. And there are other strands to that as well, financial, spiritual. There's other ways of looking at it. But I think for me, those are the big three. So if you've got human beings who feel physically strong and well, mentally strong and well, and are socially connected, I think everything else comes from there. And the impact on the economy, if you've got communities like that, is obviously far more positive. Uh, the impact on our um, things like cohesion and people, as we've said before, from different backgrounds working together um, is massive. Um, so there's, there's so many things that stem from that strong foundation. And that is everything that I really believe in. But that does need, as you've alluded to, political leadership. Because we assess everything through the financial lens. Of course we do. We're starting to assess everything, thankfully, from an environmental lens and perspective. But I think we also need to assess our politics through the well-being of our citizens and of society. So for me, it's a really important pillar that should underpin political choice and political decisions. 
And I think that's a really important point that I'd love to pick up on, actually. So you talk about assessing any policy, any potential government policy through a well-being lens. Can you define, and maybe non-politics speak, um, exactly what that means? Yeah, so I produced a report um, called Healthy Britain, which you mentioned earlier on, and it's really looking at how we can embed health and well-being in the heart of all government decisions and government policies. And that has to be done on a cross-departmental basis. So we talk about the Department for Health, whatever that looks like in whichever country, but actually our, our Departments for Health have become more about patching people up and getting people better once they've been sick or ill. And I, I think we need to start looking at how we can have government policies that take a much more preventative approach and stop people getting sick and ill in the first place. So a big part of what I believe is prevention and early intervention. And that can take many forms. It might be something which seems quite clear and simple, like investing properly in grassroots sports and facilities in communities to get people to be physically active. But it might be something which you might not necessarily automatically think of, like how we design our housing. Do we create housing and also transport that enables people to be healthy? and make the, the better choices for them. So have we got houses where people can interact with each other so they're getting the social connection that we need as human beings? Or are we creating huge big tower blocks where people might end up being socially isolated? What are we doing in terms of travel and transport? Have people got good public transport where they can get a bus easily to, to, to the, the, maybe the sports club or the health facility or even just into the town centre? Or have we got active travel policies where we can get people walking more or riding their bikes more? So it has to be embedded at the heart of every department. And also in terms of something like, um, um, you know, home affairs, have we got policies where we can get young people to be taking a healthy role in society rather than being drawn towards antisocial behaviour or crime? And again, part of that is providing them opportunities to be active. And again, I, I often defer to sport because it's my background, but, you know, giving access to cricket teams, football teams, rugby, hockey, whatever it might be, so that they're not drawn into just hanging around and, and potentially getting involved in bad behaviours. So it's that cross-department approach um, that I think government has to take a leadership role on. And then also a cross-sector approach. So we've got the private sector, the public sector and the voluntary sector working together because we have in the UK and around the world many voluntary groups and organisations who are, in essence, sometimes propping up society and propping up our communities. But nobody's getting paid for any of that stuff. They're doing it for the love of, of volunteering and, and making an impact. But actually, we need to support them properly through the public sector, working with local authorities and working with um, devolved uh, government and also nationally, but also then bringing the private sector in for the expertise that they can provide. And also every single business, I would assume, wants a happy and healthy workforce. So they can be an important part of the equation as well. So I think it's that really joined up approach that needs to be taken um, to ensure that we've got happy, healthy, um, well citizens. I mean, this is all so important. Um, and as you were talking, I was reflecting on a statistic from Gallup. Um, so at a global level, they estimate that about 15% of people are actively suffering from mental health challenges at any one time. Perhaps even more worrying, 56% of people are struggling 
So they are at risk of tipping over into that suffering space. So as you say, it's so important that all of the support structures are there to support those people who are actively suffering. But it's also imperative that preventative measures are in place to prevent more people from tipping over into that suffering space. Um, I was also really struck when you were talking about all of the different factors that drive our well-being. And I've read, obviously, the Healthy Britain report and it has recommendations that are applicable to every government of every country across the world. And there is a wonderful diagram on page six, which um, if people are watching this on YouTube, I shall ask for that to be brought up on the screen. But it has all of those drivers that you mentioned, our work, housing, public transport, social connections, family life, all of those different factors. And there are so many that drive our well-being. And what I love about your report is that it provides actionable policies that could be rolled out. And you've provided some already. But I do want to dig into something that you said, which is taking a cross-departmental approach, because those of us who don't work in politics may not be as close to that. Um, you know, I've in the past said, oh, we need a minister for well-being, a department for well-being. But you're saying, actually, no, that's not what's needed. Every single department needs to have some ownership. Can you talk more about that, please? Yeah, definitely. That was the conclusion I came to by doing the research for the report. Because again, instinctively, I thought, let's have a separate wellbeing department. But actually, the danger with that is that you create another silo and it becomes one department's responsibility. And actually, I think this is everybody's responsibility. And that's why I took the decision to recommend that this piece of work sits within the treasury, actually. And every department has to look at the policies that it puts in place in terms of health and well-being because ultimately the treasury is where the money is that's where the purse strings are but actually i don't think this is about throwing money at something either it is about a different mindset and a different approach but again the danger is if you put that into one department other people think well they're doing that so we don't have to worry about it and i don't think that's the best way of doing this um so it's basically having the Treasury sort of leading on this, but then looking at how every department is implementing health and wellbeing policy and health and wellbeing strategy. And that's the conclusion that I came to. Um, so I think that's really important. Going back to what you said earlier on about um, mental health. I mean, ultimately, in the UK at the moment, we have got a mental health crisis and the system is broken. And again, that, that's where the prevention and early intervention work is really important. Again, that has to be done on a cross-departmental basis. If somebody hasn't got decent housing, if somebody hasn't got financial security, then they are vulnerable to having mental health problems. And so you've got to embed the infrastructure of their life across all departments to prevent them having a crisis. Because at the moment, all our system in the UK does is help people when they're at crisis point. We want to stop people getting to crisis point. And we have to look at the levers that we've got within politics and within society uh, to focus on that prevention and early intervention rather than crisis point. So I think that that joined up approach is is really, really important. Um, and again, you know, again, if, if someone can't afford to pay their bills or feed their children, the last thing they're going to be thinking about is, oh, maybe I'll go out for a jog. You know, so you've got to get the basics in line, first of all. And that's why it has to be done, I think, across every government department. 
And I think this is such an important lesson. It's an important lesson for governments right across the world. But actually, these lessons are equally applicable in the corporate world as well. Um, you know, when I look at far too often in the corporate world, there might be a head of well-being. Um, but actually it's sort of siloed and well-being benefits are not sort of aligning with company culture. And you talk, of course, about how so many factors impact our well-being. And I think a lot of people struggle with the term well-being and what do we mean by that? Now, we had uh, Professor Lord Richard Layard on a, a previous podcast episode, who I know you know well, and he gave us the scientific definition because, of course, well-being is a science. But one of the things which I feel is so important is to stop myopically focusing on things that we associate with well-being. Like you say, going for a jog. Yes, that's important. It's really important that we take care of our physical and mental health. But there are all of these other drivers as well. Um, for instance, unemployment. We know that, sadly, people who are, are, are struggling with unemployment are more susceptible to mental health challenges. Sadly, people who are struggling with poor housing, access to housing, all of these things you talk about. Um, I asked Lord Richard Layard a question, and I'm going to ask you the same question. And this is sort of taking a global approach. But if every country was to take this approach of putting well-being first, taking a cross-departmental approach, what do you think are the three key policy changes that would fall out of that? Gosh, that is, that is a tough one to get it down to three. Uh, Lord Layard, by the way, is an absolutely amazing gentleman. It was an absolute honour to meet him when I when I came to Parliament, and he's been doing work on this for a long time, um, as indeed has someone else that, that people might have heard of, um, Sir Michael Marmot, who's done a huge amount of work around health inequalities. And I guess that's one of the key focuses as well, looking at health inequalities um, and addressing some of those issues before you can begin to build on the broader health and wellbeing agenda. And it sort of into what I said before about, you know, making sure people have got the basics in life, decent housing, decent transport, that they feel safe and secure in their communities. Because only once you've got those fundamental principles can you start to build on the broader health and well-being agenda. Well, I think the, fir the first big thing is just this change of approach. It's just, in, you know, it's that thing around looking through the health and well-being lens um, as a priority rather than as a, as a secondary thing. Um, I think the other thing is, is Going back to basics in terms of focusing, as I said earlier, on people. Society is really fast-paced, isn't it, nowadays? Everything happens instantaneously. And technology, whilst it's got a hugely important role to play in society, um, is not the be-all and end-all. And I think sort of reconnecting with what it means to be a human being, I think is really, really important. So putting people at the centre of our decision-making, um, I think is really important. Um, so taking that holistic approach to, to well-being more generally, putting people at the centre of our decision-making, um, I think is really, really important. Um, and again, my, my three big things, I suppose, which, which is what I talk about in the report, is that cross-departmental working, um, the cross-sector working, yeah. again, as you talked about there with the private sector, which business doesn't want a happy and healthy workforce? Of course you do, because it's more productive, it's better for the economy. Um, and then the third thing, I guess, is then that um, that prevention and early intervention approach in everything that we do. So stopping things because, before they come become a serious problem. Yeah. So it, it's that approach generally, isn't it, that, that then feeds into the specific policies that we need to make and we need to change. But until we've got that broader approach, I don't think anything will change. And you're quite right. Anybody can do that, whether you are a government, whether you're a local authority, whether you are a business, whether you are a community group, 
you know, there's, there's the good thing about this agenda is that everybody can play a part in it. If yeah. we start to think about reconnecting as human beings and again, you know, looking after each other, the work that we did um, after Joe was killed was around building strong communities. So as much as I'm looking at this now through a critical lens, actually the role that every single individual has in their communities and in society is also really important. What are you doing to look after your own health and well-being? But what are you doing to look after the health and well-being of everybody around you as well? And that's where, again, going back to volunteering, that's such an important part of this agenda. We can all have a role in building those happy, healthy, well-connected communities uh, where we bring people together rather than drive people apart. Because that's one of the other challenges we've got in politics at the moment. We're seeing a lot of division. Yeah. We're seeing polarisation. And I think we've all got responsibility, whether you are an elected person like me now or whether you are a person just working in your own community to bring people together. You know, and, and as my sister said when she spoke in Parliament for the first time, focusing on the things that we have in common, because we do have more in common than that which divides us. And if we focus on that principle and we embed that principle in our decision making and how we live our lives, then I think our communities and society can only be a much better place. And that is such an important point. And that really jumped out, actually, when I read the report. Um, you talk about the negative impacts of loneliness in the report and actually, you know, the negative impacts of loneliness, you know, are now evidently showing us as negative as perhaps obesity or smoking um, on our health. Um, and you also talk about the importance of social connection. And uh, we had uh, Dr. Kelly Harding on previously, uh, who talked about the importance of social connection. And uh, Professor Robert Waldinger as well um, is one of our guests in season two um, of this podcast uh, series. He's done a huge amount of research into the importance of social connection. You mentioned volunteering is one of the policies uh, that each and every one of us as individuals can do. Are there other things that you recommend to really build that social cohesion and community? And are there other things that we as individuals can do? Yeah, I think there are. I think we can all play a role in this. I mean, volunteering is, is a fantastic way of getting involved in your local community, but also just checking on your neighbours. You know, all the things that we did sort of certainly in the UK and I would imagine in lots of other countries around uh, during lockdown and during COVID, we sat, we built that sense of community that we don't see often enough as far as I'm concerned. So you were checking in on people, you were making sure people were like, you were making phone calls in a way that you wouldn't necessarily normally make phone calls because everything we do now is a WhatsApp message or a text message and it's very quick and instantaneous. But actually we took the time to pick up the phone and have a proper conversation and we don't do that very much anymore. Um, going around and making sure our neighbours are okay. Do you need anything? Can I help with anything? And we we don't need to retreat back into our sort of often too insular lives. I don't think. I think we need to keep that sense of togetherness in our communities. And certainly the, the constituency that I represent and where I live, we've got a selection of different towns and villages. And I think that hyper-local identity is really important to people. And knowing your neighbours um, going to the local shops, not necessarily going into a big city. So I think having that those local connections is really, really important. And you know the other thing that we haven't talked about? Having fun, having enjoyment, having pleasure and laughing and, you know, chatting to people. And I think we, we sometimes, again, you know, life can be busy. It can be serious. We can all be extremely stressed and feeling the pressure, uh, whatever we do with our jobs and with our lives. But actually just connecting and having a good old laugh I think can't be underestimated. So that power of social connection can happen in lots of different ways. But also just, you know, just taking that time out to meet up with your friends, 
or chat to somebody that you might never have met before and just having a natter and a, and a conversation. Um, and sometimes just having some good old fashioned fun. I think let's not underestimate the power of that. I love that. And why don't we put a call to action out to everybody listening now? When you finish listening to this podcast, why don't you pick up the phone or send a WhatsApp or maybe even write a letter to somebody who you love in your life, but who you haven't spent enough time with recently? Because it gives us all such a lift, doesn't it? Um, whether you get a phone call or a text or a, a letter or whatever it is from somebody you love. Um, and if you have a neighbour who's struggling, drop a little a little tiny gift over them to them to give them a lift. Um, that might be a nice call to action. <laughs> Yeah, we're human beings. We need that social connection. We need that interaction. I think, yeah, absolutely. Let's make sure everybody goes up and does that today. Wonderful. And there's a ripple effect, of course, of kindness. When somebody does something kind to you, you then want to go on and and and, and pay it forward. Um, so I'm going to move to what I like to call the rapid fire round. Um, so if you had a time machine, Kim, and you could go travel 30 years into the future, what is the change that you would like to see in the world? Oh, my goodness me. I would like us to have gone a bit more back to basics in terms of how we treat each other. That human connection that we've talked about, people focusing on people, not on technology, and just that really sen important sense of togetherness and community. And just, yeah, stripping back to basics a little bit. I actually went travelling 10 years ago to New Zealand and some of the areas in New Zealand where you are just so close to nature and you're away from the hustle and bustle. And we have it in lots of countries, of course, don't we, as well? But, but New Zealand, it really struck me. Um, just going back to basics um, and focusing on human connection and looking after each other and supporting each other and just having a, a slower pace of life. I'm not sure how possible that is, but that would be really lovely. I mean, you're describing the most incredible future where we all get to spend more time in natural beauty out in nature uh, with each other, you know, in, in a socially connected world with less divisiveness. Um, so I'm going to ask you to hop back in your time machine, though, and I want you to travel back in time to your 18 or 21 year old self. What advice would you have for that young lady? Gosh, I think the thing is, be true to your principles and get to know what your values are and then stick to those values. And I think I have done that actually, hopefully throughout my life, but also never lose sight of what's really important. Um, you know, I've made different choices at different times in my life, um, but I've always tried to go with what I think is the right thing to do. Um, and, I, and I think hopefully I've got that right most of the time. Um don't lose sight of what's important in life in terms of, again, going back to the people side of it. You know, people are important. Possessions and money, yes, we need those things. But actually, really staying grounded in, in you know, people and human beings and the difference that you can make in society. So looking outward and not looking inward. Um, and I think, yeah, some of those really simple principles. And also just, you know, I, I go back to our childhood quite a lot. I talk about the way that Joe and I were brought up. And I think, treating everybody with respect, treating everybody with compassion, listening to people, understanding different perspectives and viewpoints. So just keeping all that at the heart of how you go about living your life, I think is really, really important. So you talked about having fun earlier. Tell me what you do to inject fun into your life on a daily basis. 
No, I know. Let's be honest now. So the problem with this job is it is literally 24-7 if you let it be. And I sadly am the sort of person who struggles to say no to anything. I instinctively go, yeah, I can do that. So I don't have as much fun as I used to. Um, but when I do get chance, I love catching up with my friends. I used to play hockey. I played hockey uh, for 30 years. Got a fantastic bunch of friends in the hockey team. So I try and catch up with them. Um, I also do love, I know it sounds a bit sad, doesn't it? But um, exercise for me is fun. I don't get as much chance as I used to to be physically active. So if ever I can get out and do some exercise, that's important for me. But the other thing that I don't do as much of as I used to is just go for a massage and go for some downtime at a, 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 a spa, have a little jacuzzi, those sorts of things. Because that's the only time I ever really switch off because you can't take your phone with you. No one will contact you. Um, so, yeah, so spending time with family and friends um, and then also just having that little bit of relaxation time as well. Um, but I'm really lucky, to be honest, even though I spend most of my time working, I've got a brilliant staff team. So even though it's hard work, we also have a really good laugh and we do try and have lots of fun. And to be honest, you couldn't do this job if you weren't able to do that. So I've got a good team around me who managed to keep us laughing, yeah, as much as we possibly can, even though it's hard sometimes. So I'm hearing that you're you're a wonderful team, uh, and I think it's really important that we all recognize and appreciate and thank our colleagues and our team who are supporting us in whatever it is we're trying to achieve. You've mentioned your love of sport, and that really um, fulfills you so much. But you did mention that it's a very full-on job. You use the phrase 24-7. What do you do to create boundaries? Because nobody can work 24-7. We are all human beings, no matter what remit we have. What advice would you have for other people who may feel that actually they're working so much they're getting close to burnout? How do you create those boundaries? No, I think it is. I think the thing that you have to remember is you can't pour from an empty cup. So if you are exhausted and you haven't got anything left to give, you can't do all the things that you might want to do to help other people or to be successful. So I think even though, and I, I'm really bad at this, I have to say, I'm really bad at asking for help. I'm really bad at um, taking that time out to put myself first. But if you don't do those things, then you can't do all the other things that you want to do. So I think remembering that and seeing that asking for help and support is actually a strength. Yeah. It's not a weakness. Um, and actually taking that time out to look after yourself in whatever way that looks like is really valuable in terms of, get it up and going again to do all the other stuff that you want to do in life. So I think self-care and not being afraid to ask for help are actually really, really important. Um, and you should view that as a, a strong thing to do rather than a weak thing to do because it's absolutely not. But again, I do need to practice what I preach in that regard a little bit more. Absolutely. So and we all should, because in some ways we all know that advice, but it's so easy to forget. And maybe we need nudges um, like podcasts like this, um, small nudges that will remind us to put our own life jacket on first and to carve out time for self-care. Um, and also, also, I think spending time with people will make you feel good. Yes. Spending time with people who, you know, you've got a good relationship with and yeah, they make you feel good. You make them feel good. And that's again going to back to the importance of having those really strong relationships and connections. Because um, it's easy when you're working a lot or you're, you're, you've got a stressful lifestyle or you're spending too much time on your own um, to lose that. So, yeah, spending time with people who make you feel positive. Brilliant advice. What do you wish you'd learned sooner? Probably if I go back to my teens and my 20s, um, you know, caring less about 
what other people necessarily think about you, caring less about what you look like. Um, but I think we, that's growing up, isn't it? That's what we all do, I suppose, at, at that age. But yeah, caring less about what other people think, but more about making sure that I've done the right thing. And I do, and I do that now at this age. I, I feel like, look, I, I'm conscious that I've done the right thing, and that doesn't mean that some people are going to disagree with you. Of course, they are because that's life. But yeah, caring less about what the people think, and um, again, yeah, the, the 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 what you look like thing. I think now we've got young people growing up under huge amounts of pressure because of social media, which we've kind of touched on to look a certain way and to be a certain way, and I think that's really, really unhealthy. Um, we we need to be strong in our own identities and not feel that we have to conform to the stereotypes that society might make us feel that we need to conform to. And I would say that to any young person who's listening, you know, you are unique and, and being unique is really important. Don't feel that you've got to conform to what society makes you feel like you should. I mean, that's just such wonderful advice that I personally wish that you had given me that advice. If we had a time machine, perhaps we, we could go back and you could give my 18-year-old self that advice. But giving me that advice at this age is also wonderful advice. And I think it's the perfect place to finish a, a really, really insightful interview. And just to say a huge thank you, Kim, for sharing your time, your expertise and your wisdom. Well, thank you so much for, for, for letting me come on the show. It's been absolutely brilliant. So I say, keep going, everybody out there. Be yourself, be strong, but also make sure that you really do look after yourselves as well because it is really, really important. Hear, hear. What a wonderful message. And thank you so much again, Kim. Thank you.